0: and welcome to the development podcast coming to you from the World Bank Group in the United States and around the world. I'm Paul Blake alongside Raka Banerjee.
1: Today, climate change. As the global community unites to
2: tackle this historic challenge, the World Bank is charting a path forward. If we don't tackle climate change, uh, over 130 million people will be pushed into poverty over the next 10 years and entire economies will be held hostage to the worst impacts of climate change.
0: And from Santiago, we hear how Chile is doing its part to address climate change from the Andes to the Atacama.
3: Today, for developing country, the urgency is on adaptation. Climate change is really, really, you know, very, very strong today affecting peoples and countries all over the world. All that and more over the next few minutes. But first, let's take a look at the data.
0: So before we jump into the Climate Change Action Plan, let's go back to basics. We hear about climate change all the time, but can you give me some data to help me you know, get a sense of, of what it really looks like?
1: So 132 million people expected to be pushed into poverty over the next 10 years because of climate impacts. That's data from the World Bank. Um, 4.2 million people dying every year due to outdoor air pollution. That's data from the World Health Organization. Uh, In fact, as of the most recent data, which is from a few few years back, 91% of the world's people lived in places where the air pollution actually exceeded the World Health Organization's guidelines for safety.
0: I mean, those numbers don't sound good at all. And when we talk about climate change, it's not just air pollution or poverty necessarily. We're also talking about a a whole range of other possible impacts right
1: yeah we're talking about everything from you know people being forced to leave their homes because it's too hot too dry too wet and flooded Um, we're talking about people facing food insecurity through drought or famine we're talking about global impacts of biodiversity loss and deforestation and that's just a start if you think about the cost of natural disasters alone, in terms of the damage that they're doing to power generation and transportation infrastructure, so everything from power lines to roads and bridges, the yearly cost of those damages in low and middle income countries is estimated at $18 billion. And then looking at the larger cost to households and businesses, the cost jumps to a staggering $390 billion.
0: I mean, those are, are huge costs, and, and I, you know, I remember the Paris Climate Agreement back in in 2015. To what extent did they, you, you know, did that that agreement put us on the path to addressing climate change?
1: Yeah, that was a huge milestone, um, bringing the leaders of all countries to the table to you know really formally recognize that climate change is a huge problem. Each country to defined their own targets to help mitigate impacts and reduce the amount of damage being done to the environment. And in the run-up to Paris, you also saw businesses and the private sector stepping up. But as impressive as that was, we're now in the much harder phase because countries have to not only achieve those targets that were set then, but have to revise them to address the causes and effects of climate change. So this is particularly difficult for low-income countries, which are both more vulnerable to climate change and at the same time. At the same time, they have fewer resources to deal with the impacts of climate change, right? And on top of all of that, they emit the least. So they're far less responsible for the climate impacts that we're seeing today.
0: And making these changes, achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, that's going to take a lot of money, I imagine, You know, to make investments in, in emitting less carbon or helping people deal with the effects of climate change.
1: Well, so that's where the bank is trying to play a supportive role in this process by making financing available. Um, in order to implement these changes, especially for low and lower middle income countries. So, and, and when you're talking about emitting less carbon or helping people deal with the effects of climate change, there are actually technical terms for those. Um, you know, emitting less carbon is we're we're talking about climate change mitigation projects that are working to slow climate change by reducing emissions. So one example of that is green public transportation, like the new buses that I don't know if you've been seeing in D.C. Um, And that's mitigation. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And then the other is climate change adaptation. So projects that help people deal with the effects of climate change that are already here or, you know, that are inevitable, like building seawalls to protect people um, and cities from rising sea levels and dangerous hurricanes, stuff like that.
0: Okay, so I understand what adaptation and mitigation are, but, but what is the World Bank itself doing to, to take climate action, as it's called?
1: So, the World Bank is actually the biggest multilateral funder of climate action projects around the world. Uh, since the Paris Agreement was signed about five years ago, the bank delivered $83 billion in climate financing for low and middle income countries. And this new climate change action plan is going to lead to even more investment going forward.
0: All right. Well, thanks for all the background and context.
1: My pleasure. <laughs>
0: In a few minutes, we'll be talking to the World Bank's Genevieve Connors about the climate change action plan. But first, let's get the view from South America, specifically from the country of Chile.
1: Home to some of the world's most stunning natural landscapes, from the Andes Mountains in the east, the Atacama Desert in the north, and its famously long Pacific coastline, Chile faces unique threats from climate change.
0: Well, just what are those threats and how is the country tackling them? Rocco recently spoke to the Minister of the Environment of Chile, Carolina Schmidt.
1: I was wondering if you could tell us about the threat that climate change poses to Chile and you know just what are the, some of the key environmental challenges that the country
3: is facing Well Chile is a very vulnerable country to climate change we meet 7 of the 9 vulnerability criteria established by the UNFCCC that means that we have low coastal areas we have arid zones we have mountain areas we have urban zones with atmospheric pollution. So, you know, we are really very vulnerable, and we are feeling today the effects of climate change, especially because of the reductions of rain. We have, for 14 years, we are facing a draft that is very, very, very strong, and the increase of temperatures we are already feeling. So our main problems really are on uh, water management. We need to adapt to climate change and we need to do it very, very fast because people are suffering the effects and impact, especially uh, regarding the reduction of of water availability. I wonder if you can speak to some of the regional issues that, you know, what, what are some of the key investments
1: that beyond Chile that other countries in the region will be needing to make in the coming years, looking forward to transition to a hopefully a greener future. Well,
3: we are developing an ambitious climate agenda uh, that is, you know, that our main, our main issue and it's something is very important is to uh, to have a climate agenda that transcends uh, government and became a state policy uh, that boosts the basis of our growth and developing in a sustainable way in Chile. So we have developed uh, a strong tools in in that area. First, we are we present the uh, climate change framework law that established the goal of to be carbon neutral in our country, uh, to reach carbon neutrality by the latest in 2050. We also present very ambitious NDC, updated NDC last year in the middle of the COVID uh, pandemic with all our goals at 2030. Uh, we are developing now our long-term climate strategy which demands all sectors of our economy to transform to strongly reduce uh, emissions now uh, to change and decarbonize our um, our energy uh, matrix we will have 65 percent of our all our coal, coal plants that will be uh, phased out closed by 2025 we have this this plan uh, to be carbon neutral, and then this is based in mitigation in, in investment in, in five areas. First, as I was telling you, uh, the change of our coal matrix, closing all our, our, our coal power plants. Eighty-seven yeah, percent of all, all our private investment today in Chile is on on. Uh, Re- renewable energy plants. So we are changing very fast uh, our our energy matrix. Secondly, we are investing strongly in the fuel, the clean fuel of the future, that green hydrogen. Uh, we are planning to be the cheapest producers of green hydrogen, the green fuel uh, to the world by twenty thirty, and this is you know one of the a big bases of our. Uh, a carbon neutral plan also you know investment are uh, very strong in sustainable development i wonder what do you see um, that the global community can do to address these challenges no global community must do a lot we are need to understand this is a global issue it's, you know it's not possible that one country do a lot and the other one is not you know doing uh, enough especially big emitters must understand that you know this is the biggest biggest uh, challenge that we are facing in this century you know as humanity so we need to understand also that climate change already arrived that it, the mitigation is as important as adaptation we cannot still think you know that we have to focus the global action in mitigation and leave adaptation in a in a, a position that is not as urgent today for developing country the urgency is on adaptation climate change is really, really, you know, very, very strong today, affecting peoples and countries all over the world. So we must understand that these two things, mitigation and adaptation are equally urgent and equally important to implement right now. So all the different instruments that we uh, can use to really foster action in both mitigation and adaptation are urgent.
0: Minister Carolina Schmidt detailing the threats that climate change poses to Chile and how the country is taking action. She spoke to us from Santiago.
1: Well, Chile is just one government taking climate action and addressing these issues head on.
0: But building a sustainable future requires massive investment, and that's where the World Bank Group is stepping up.
1: To hear more about the investments and actions that the bank group is making and planning to make over the next decade in support of governments and climate action, we recently sat down with Genevieve Connors, the bank's manager for advisory and operations on climate change.
0: And we started by asking her to tell us in her own words, what exactly is the climate change action plan?
2: So let me maybe explain three aspects of CCAP that I think would help describe it to answer your question. So So first, we've really tried to focus on ways to better integrate climate uh, and development. So so why do we do that? Well, if we don't tackle climate change, uh, over 130 million people will be pushed into poverty over the next 10 years. And entire economies will be held hostage to the worst impacts of climate change. How do we do this? Well, we describe a lot of ways in the CCAP, but I think the real game changer will be the new country climate and development reports, or what we call the CCDRs which will become a core diagnostic for the World Bank Group and inform our engagements with clients in the future. So what, what is inside a CCDR? It's essentially a tailored blueprint for every country to think about climate and development together uh, to factor in issues such as what are the trade-offs, what are the transition costs, what are, for example, the political economy challenges uh, in the country, uh, and so on.
0: It almost sounds like when um, you go to the doctor's office and and they sort of tell you, like, here's, you know, here's some of the issues you face. Here's the ways we can we, we can sort of treat it. You know, it's like a, a custom kind of report card in a way.
2: Well, that's a good analogy because the World Bank has other core diagnostics that it uh, produces uh, in consultation and with our partners and our client countries. But what's different about the CCDR is it's a diagnostic for climate and for climate and development alone. And I think the fact that this is now one of these core diagnostics that the World Bank Group will undertake with all our client countries is really a paradigm shift and will really change the way that all of us in the World Bank Group, in country units, in policy engagement teams will think about climate and everything that we do. I was wondering if you'd clear up another thing I was a little confused
1: about. Um, One of the headlines from the plan is that uh, the goal of increasing the level of financing uh, that has climate co-benefits. So I, I saw the co-benefits word. I was wondering what you meant exactly by that.
2: Sure, Co- co-benefits is the word we use um, the phrase climate co-benefits internal to the World Bank Group. What What is it? So put very simply, it's the share of financing that's dedicated to climate change adaptation or mitigation in operations financed by the World Bank. So it's for actions that support climate change. Uh, And it's really important in the new CCAP that we've made a very seminal commitment to increase the amount of climate finance. Uh, In the last CCAP, we had a target of 28% of our total finance for climate finance or climate co-benefits over the last uh, few years, the tail end of the CCAP, but we achieved 26% on average over those last five years. We've already announced our new target, but to reach thirty-five percent, which is our new target, on average over the next five years, is going to be really quite a different uh, ball game altogether. So,
0: to, to understand here, so the climate co-benefits—that's looking at if if the bank is going to go do like a, a a project in a country that's going to involve you know working on um, bridges or or roads or something like that. Looking at how much of that project, what percentage of that project will address climate change issues as well like or or if a project is going to go okay so it's
2: correct it's the share of a total project that counts according to a methodology that that we abide by and that we've developed with other mdbs that very strictly defines what share of that project is actually supporting mitigation outcomes according to a list of projects or or categories of investments that would count or what share of that project is actually supporting the the investments associated, for example, with a bridge that make the bridge more resilient to climate change?
1: So basically, more than a third more than a third of World Bank financing is is dedicated. The, the target is to have more than a third of World Bank financing dedicated to addressing the climate.
2: Correct. And for the World Bank, it's also important to say that we've made a, a further, a second commitment, that at least 50% of our total climate finance, this is for Ida and IBRD, will be for adaptation specifically. So, so that we can... Yeah, go can ahead. Can
0: you explain that, uh, and, and forgive me, because as one of the less technical members of staff, can you explain that difference between 35 and 50%? What is the difference between those two goals?
2: Oh, it, well, basically, to put it simply, it's that over a third of total World Bank Group climate financing will be for, sorry, World Bank Group financing will be for climate. Whereas what we're saying for the World Bank is that we want half of that to be for adaptation. Essentially, we want to commit to parity in our objectives between mitigation and adaptation. and We think that's especially important for our countries, some of whom are extremely poor, not just in our IDA countries. Um, and that we want to support them, for example, in protecting them from coastal erosion um, or the impacts of devastating cyclones. So. And
0: so just just to hammer this home, because I'm trying to just so you're saying of the um, sort of IBRD and Ida funding, 50% will go towards, at least 50% will go towards adaptation to climate change. Is that across the board for all financing or all for, for climate financing?
2: No, sorry, it's just climate. So, of our climate finance, half will be for mitigation, and at least half will be for adaptation. Got it. So, I wanted to, um, I wanted to shift a little bit to uh,
1: the the Paris uh, Climate Accords that were signed, um, you know, in late twenty fifteen. So, m- most people are pretty familiar with those, I would say. Um, and you, you've talked about. Uh, I've heard that the World Bank is sort of aligning itself with the Paris Agreement. I was wondering if you could share a bit more about what exactly that means, you know, how is the bank aligning with the Paris Climate Accords uh, going forward? Sure, that's a good
2: question. and It's probably the question that we get the most often. Uh, As you will have seen for the World Bank, uh, we have committed to 100% alignment starting in uh, July 1st, 2023. Um, and our and our sister organizations in the IFC and MIGA will follow uh, pretty soon after us to reach 100% as well. So, But what does that mean? This is the question we get all the time. So I do want to say how we define Paris alignment so far. And I say so far because it absolutely is a journey over the next few years to become more and more specific as to what it means for sector X or sector Y and what it means for country X or country Y when those countries are in different pathways uh, towards decarbonization or a resilient future. So I want to tell you how we define it in the CCAP briefly, and I want to quote this, that we define Paris alignment as the provision of support to clients in a way that is consistent with low carbon and climate resilient development pathways, aligned with the objectives of the Paris agreement and consistent with client countries' national climate commitments. So how does and that look to
0: for like... For like specific projects, is that sort of saying okay, we're not going to do this type of project, and we are going to do that type of project?
2: So let me, yeah. So let me put it in really practical terms. So it, there are some projects or some sectors, I should say, that are absolutely considered non-aligned, and I'll give you some examples: mining of thermal coal. Uh, coal is really incompatible with climate objectives. Electricity from coal, extraction of peat, electricity from peat, etc. Definitely, and got questions in a minute
0: about those for you, but we'll we'll get there.
2: Okay. And there's some projects that are really obviously aligned an in investment in renewable energy, for example. There's also a lot of projects that we would, or sectors, again, or investments that we would consider do no harm, which are aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement, but don't actively advance its attainment. For example, educational reform. But there's a sizable gray area, and this is what where it gets thorny and tricky. And if you probe deeply into all our sister and partner organizations on their definitions of Paris alignment, this is where everyone is investing their energy right now, is how to unpack what that gray area is. Um, there might be something that is needed from a development perspective, but that doesn't really add up for decarbonization or resilience.
0: So would that be something like an education reform like uh, you know, we need to increase literacy of kind of elementary school students, but it it doesn't really touch the 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 sort no. of goals of the Paris
2: mm-hmm. No, that no, because that that's a do no harm category, and a, a do no harm category doesn't actively advance the goal, but it doesn't detract from it. I'll tell, talk about maybe more more uh, complicated or controversial matters, like what do we do in natural gas.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we haven't financed upstream oil and gas for two years. We made the announcement in 2017, and we haven't financed anything in the last two years. Um, and we have not looked at coal for many years, for 10 years. But we do, we do consider natural gas, there's a pretty high bar to pass to be able to do natural gas if we want to align with the Paris Agreement. But there may be certain circumstances in which this is important.
0: And and on the coal point, uh, you know, I was, I was looking through some of the the materials that are out there about the, the climate change action plan. Um, and there's often this talk of like supporting a just transition out of coal. Um, help me understand why that is so tricky. You know, why can't why can't coal just be abandoned, you know, just say today, we're abandoning it all together. And and, and what is that phrase, just transition? What does that mean exactly?
2: It's a good question. And again, I think along with Paris alignment, I think for me personally, it's one of the most interesting and... Uh, informative and transformational parts of CCAP going forward is our commitment to work on just transition. So, I mean, to start with, it's to come back to what I said before, I mean, coal is just really incompatible with, with climate objectives and the objectives of the Paris Agreement. Um, we know that, but we also know that there are many of our client countries where even if we no longer finance coal, they rely on coal and entire communities or economies, local regional economies are, are dependent on coal. Um, so we have workers and fossil fuel industries who are, you know, individuals with families, homes, plans for the future. This, is, this happens in, in all our, um, in, in my country as well, and not just in our client country. Um, but if we don't manage that transition well. You know, not only are we going to have the stranded assets, for example, of these coal power plants that can no longer be used or no longer compatible with a country's climate objectives, but we also run the risk of stranding uh, entire communities. So just transition is really about supporting approaches that integrate people, integrate communities into the low carbon transition so that they're not left behind or ignored. And that the jobs just don't go to other parts of countries and other areas and other sectors and, and leave people behind because you'll just never have the political support to undertake the transition.
0: So you're not sort of just blowing up people's livelihoods you know, very rapidly.
2: You need need everyone to be a part of the new climate economy of the future. And this is a discussion that is live all over the world in every single country. What does that look like and and how can they be involved? I mean, one of the areas that we work in as the World Bank is, for example, in social safety nets. So how can we use our social protection programs and engagement in in labor programs or social safety net programs, for example, to support people to find new jobs or to build new skills so that they're ready for the green economy.
1: You'll be looking at countries and you know the the people who are currently working in you know sectors like coal or uh, looking at their the economic cost for them, the job loss. I
2: mean, all all of that is going to be included. That will certainly be part of it. That will certainly be part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the idea is that we look across the landscape of climate and development in that country. So just transition is, is, not, is not the only thing. We also look for, for example, the CCAP talks a lot about systems transitions, and that's something we can come to in a minute. But for example, if we're talking about transitions that need to happen in the agriculture and food sector, these will absolutely be part and parcel of, of the CCDRs.
0: And and on that on those systems uh in in some of the materials I was looking at about the Ccap and and sort of preparing for this conversation uh if I'm not mistaken there were five systems mentioned uh energy agriculture uh sorry energy is the first one agriculture food and land being the second cities transportation and manufacturing uh and and as I understand it what you're saying is that that these different systems need green transitions um why, like, how did you arrive at these topics, and why, why these topics, and, and and I guess, what do you mean by a transition? What does a transition look like?
2: So these these are indeed five systems. You're, you're right. Let me let me just add that for the agriculture, food, and land that you mentioned, we we do call it the agriculture, food, water, and land because we think those those sectors are really deeply integrated, and so many nexus solutions are needed to achieve the transition. Um, Why these five, Uh, we chose them because collectively they add up to over 90% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and they also face significant uh, climate impacts. Um, And so what do we mean by transition? Well, we think that over time, these five systems, these five sectors hold the key to unlocking and supporting a green, resilient and inclusive recovery from the pandemic. And they really changes in how we grow food, for example or how we transport our people or our goods and our services, or how we how we use water and our water security, and of course, how we generate energy and produce energy are going to be absolutely fundamental for us to achieve the uh, goals of the Paris Agreement well before <laughs> 2050. Uh, without transformation in these, there will be really no possibility of, of attaining the goals of the Paris Agreement given the predominance of these sectors for as, as sources for greenhouse gas emissions.
1: On on those five, that's really interesting. So you said uh, between those five systems, they make up ninety ninety five percent of over over ninety oh, over 90 percent. And uh, is there is there one of the uh, the five systems in particular that uh, is, is sort of the most significant, or it's just you're you're looking at it all to, all together more holistically?
2: We look we look at it all together. We look at it all together. I mean, th- there there are huge emission sources from from agriculture, from the way we grow food, from the way we we grow we grow our you know we raise our livestock and grow rice, um, all of these. And of course, you know, you could say ostensibly manufacturing is also. Uh, maybe smaller as a source because it's really a, a u- utilization of many of these sources, but it's an absolutely important business line for our clients and, and as they grow and develop, as well as for our sister organizations in the IFC and Mega. So I, we don't we don't treat one as more important than the other, mm-hmm. um, and we think we really genuinely think they are all fundamental. I mean, land use in cities, for example, as cities grow, as the world continues to urbanize, th- these things will be fundamental to changing how, the trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and let me some- just say on the on the basis of. recovery, I think this is important, you know, for many of our client countries, the pandemic is, is nowhere near over or done with. It still pl- poses really clear and immediate threats to people, to health, to livelihoods. Um, so there's no question that our focus will be on uh, supporting our clients with meeting those immediate needs. But now is the time to think about green recovery for all our clients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and sharing all of this with us. It's, it's been really fascinating. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul and Raka. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of The Development Podcast.
1: As always, we want your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at thedevelopmentpodcast at worldbank.org.
0: Until next time, goodbye.
3: Goodbye.